Hi investors, this is Danny with Investorly. At Investorly, we empower you to invest early in your financial future. We recently launched A Conversation With, our audio series on Twitter. In this episode, we welcomed Matthew Tuttle, CEO of Tuttle Capital, and Julian Klimachko, CEO of Accelerate, along with special guest Bill Spackman, writer of SubSpack. We learned each of their financial journeys, how they approach market trends and ETFs, the volatile ride of SPACs this year, their take on crypto, and the importance of a diversified portfolio. To stay informed of upcoming episodes and receive our insightful weekly newsletter, subscribe at investorly.substack.com. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Matthew, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing good. Can you hear me okay? Loud and clear, absolutely, yeah. All right, and, good. And uh, I'll just get fired off with you right away. So who inspired you uh, to begin your investing journey? Yeah, I mean, that was in the, the 80s and the 90s. So yes, I am old. Um, yeah, a couple things happened, both at the same time. So I was in business school and had a professor who, teaching the normal business curriculum, got the kind of modern portfolio theory and kind of pulled me aside one day and was like, well, you know, this is, is bull. You know, I, I have to teach it. It's part of the curriculum. But let me show you what really works. And was telling me about how him and another professor had designed a moving average crossing system, made currencies, and had sold it to a hedge fund. So I was fascinated, kind of tried to reverse engineer it. And yeah, it actually worked pretty well. At the same time, was reading the uh, the Market Wizards books by Jack Schwager, and a lot of those stories of of guys who had you know designed programs to to trade in the market were were, were just fascinating. So that that's really what inspired me and got me started. I love hearing you tell your story about what you got how you got started and sort of the reverse engineering and sort of a, a different perspective. That brings me to Julian and let's welcome Julian to, to the space. Julian, was there one person who mentored you early on in your investing career? Hey, Michael. Hey, Danny. Happy to be on the Investorly Spaces and Dual Podcast. So thank you for having me. As for mentorship, uh, I'll give you the background of what got me into investing because uh, growing up, I really had zero, like absolutely zero exposure to it. Kinda, I'm not the wonder kind that started investing at five years old. Dad was a stockbroker. <laughs> not even close. So um, this would have been in the early 2000s and, um, you know, just uh, in a university and I come across of all people, Jim Cramer. And uh, he really resonated with me because someone who at that time was tech technically minded, studying engineering in university and no exposure to stocks or investing. And I see this crazy guy on the radio or TV. I'm not sure if he was on TV at the time, but um, he was talking about how you can make money in the market and how he made tens of millions of dollars as a hedge fund manager. I'm like, well, I think I'm pretty smart. Maybe I could do that. So I started reading into it first. Just buying as many books as I possibly could, not any on any specific style, basically on everything. Initially, started reading about technical analysis and various technical type trading, which didn't really resonate with me too much. And then got books more so on fundamental investing, whether it's um, you know common stocks, uncommon profits, or analysis. Um, ben Graham, 
uh, Peter Lynch's books. And those were the types that uh, really resonated with me, Warren Buffett's uh, letter to shareholders and, and things of that nature. So I really just dug into it and it was really a um, lifetime path that grew uh, a long time ago. Um, you know, pretty much 20 years ago. And from there, never really had any specific mentor in which I worked under. I mean, a lot of investors kind of figure it out for themselves. And I think I took a lot from other investors who were nice enough is enough to produce content for others to learn from them. One specifically that had Probably the biggest effect on me was, I think, Joel Greenblatt. He has a number of uh, amazing investment books that are very easy to consume. So he so, sort of opened up the world initially to uh, special situations, investing, arbitrage, and things of that nature with his book. Um, uh, oh, it's not the uh, little book that that beats the market. That's one that uh, is more so on quantitative investing, but it's you can be a stock market genius. And I recommend that book to everyone. I think it's amazing in terms of opening up uh, investing beyond just going long like Apple or Amazon, like really looking for inefficiencies in the market. So that heavily influenced me, uh, Seth Klarman's book, um, Margin of Safety. And uh, there's just so many others, um, whether it's uh, Fisher's book or Lynch's books. I have a library of honestly... Um, you know, hundreds or perhaps thousands of investment books. And I was, after that, I joined uh, Value Investors Club and, and various kind of internet forums for uh, many, many years and kind of honed my craft there and, you know, started on the buy side uh, in, in kind of mid to later 2000s and have been there ever since. And so that is my background story. Well, uh, Julian, that's a fascinating one. I like that. Uh, and you, you mentioned uh, Jim Cramer. Uh, early on, uh, who kind of inspired you? Um, was it uh, was it during Cudlow and Kramer? Yeah, it might have been that time. So this would have been early two thousands, and uh, I forget the medium, but I remember he was like pretty entertaining. And for someone who at the time didn't know much at all about investing, he really introduced me uh, to the world of what was possible. Now, I don't really resonate with his investment style, but uh, at the time I, I did find him entertaining. So I just, you know, tune in whenever he was on and learn at the time as much as I could, because at uh, that point in my life, I knew I knew nothing about investing. And it, it, he was someone who was entertaining and friendly to someone who knew nothing about the market. Well, uh, uh, Mike and I have created our own uh, technical indicator, and that's the uh, the Cudlow indicator. Basically, oh, yeah. uh, nice. it's kind of like the VIX, just do the opposite of uh, what he, um, what he <laughs> Oh, good contrarian indicator. Yeah, I know for many years people used uh, Dennis Gartman with respect to uh, commodities and, and currencies and things of that nature. So, yeah, it's always good to have various contrarian indicators in the market. Of course, yeah. Well, Matthew, I wanted... Yeah, we, we used to have Elaine Garzarelli back when I was a broker. She was a great contrarian indicator as well. Yeah. <laughs> they're either they're either behind the news or they or they're 100 percent wrong. So you're uh, you're you're always if they say to buy, that's when you that's when you definitely short. Um, <laughs> but, uh, Matthew, I wanted to I wanted to ask you um, to talk about your journey of, of how you of how you formed uh, Total Capital. So yeah, you know I was uh, at a bunch of different brokerage firms you know, none of which exist anymore, not my fault. 
um, and just was horrified by what passed as financial. I'll never forget, you know, one of my first days at, at Prudential Securities, a old timer comes up to me and said, you know, hey, here's how you succeed in this business. Cold call like crazy, get a few clients, churn them, you know, a couple, you know, you're going to blow up half of them, half will stay, half will leave, and you just keep doing it over and over again, you'll make a lot of money. I'm sitting there listening to this guy and, and he's serious. He's like, oh my God, we, you know, we got myself into, you know, I thought stockbrokers were like money managers. So, you know, ended up going to a couple of different insurance companies, same problem, different marketplace. And in 2003, a friend of mine in the business handed me a book, How to Start Your Own RIA. And I had never realized, I mean, yeah, it's not easy, but I'd never realized that it was, you know, so doable. So I read the book cover to cover. And a week later, pretty much, I had my own RIA, had my own wealth management business, was cranking along. Um, and in 2008, I had a bunch of what were called absolute return mutual funds. And I wrote a book at that point, How Harvard and Yale Beat the Market, on how you could use kind of absolute return mutual funds to create you know, an endowment type of portfolio. And then 2008. And absolute return mutual funds didn't lose as much as the market, but certainly lost you know enough that I'm thinking that's not absolute return. And you know, one of the guys I, I talked to on the phone at one point, he's like, "Yeah, you know, our portfolio managers saw the crash coming, but because we're a mutual, we couldn't go to cash. They had to decide well." you know, what, what areas can we go into? And they were wrong. And I just thought that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. I mean, to me, if I see a crash coming, I'm going to go to cash or I'm going to short the market or I'm going to do something. And so I realized at that point, all right, the only way to do it right is do it yourself. So we started putting in place some of our own money management strategies, started really well. And in 2012, started having financial advisors coming to us and saying, you know, hey, can you kind of be our outsourced chief investment officer, which, you know, that was the business I always wanted to be in. So I was like, yeah, I mean, I'll totally do that. And one guy said, well, you know, wait a second, we got a problem. You know, you're kind of right down the street from me. I don't want clients looking at your website and saying, why don't I just cut out the middleman? So I said, all right, I'll set up a money management firm. And you go to my website, it'll say nothing about wealth management. So it was cool. So we did that in 2012. We're cranking along. Uh, started getting very freighted trading on custodial platforms. You know, the TD Ameritrades, the Schwabs, the Fidelities. It's just very limiting. And I'm going to all these conferences and I'm meeting all these different you know, out there and they're telling me all the great things they can do. And like, I, I can't trade with you. You know, the, the custodians won't let me trade away. And then one day, you know, one of the traders said, well, why don't you just launch ETFs for your strategies? And then that way in the ETF, you can trade with whatever broker you want. And then Odeon, you just, you know, trade once and buy the ETF. 
So, you know, I'm, I'm not one to, you know, sit and think about something. So within a few months, we had our first ETFs, uh, giving my wealth management business to one of, uh, one of our biggest clients at the time and have been doing ETFs ever since. Uh, Matthew, that's a fascinating story. And it just kind of goes to prove that, um, you know, if you've got the entrepreneurial spirit uh, and you're, you're kind of under somebody else's uh, watch, then, you know, take it out on your own, take the risk. And uh, that's, that's really admirable. I like that. But also, uh, not only that is, um, you know, when you see something, when you see everything way too frothy or way too hot, don't be a blind bull and, and be active and dynamic. That's, that's a great point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Michael, I wanted to throw it over to you. Yeah, thanks. But, uh, I got I got two things. I, I really liked one thing you specifically said there that I wrote down, Matthew. The only way to do it right is to do it yourself. That's a fantastic quote. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm going to remember that one. I'm actually going to probably use that at some point in the future and tag you on that. That's really uh, electric, just a statement. I want to take a second to just welcome a buddy of SPAC space in general, one of the, the premier, uh, you know, newsletters in the SPAC space, Bill Spackman, who is now a penguin. That's okay. Cause I'm a cat. He, uh, he's, he's here. And I want to just uh, shout out to him and his, uh, daily dish, which is giving everything SPAC related on a daily basis, uh, consistently. That's where I get a lot of my information and news. So I want to thank him for joining us. Uh, and at any point, if he wants to chat, but just a shout out to the Daily Dish and Bill Spackman for everything he does for the space. Um, How's it going, Mike, Julian, good. Matt? Hey. <laughs> nice to see you, Bill. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Hope everyone's having a good week. To keep this rolling, because it was starting to develop into a great conversation, I wanted to turn to Julian and hear sort of similarly from him about you know what was the inspiration and how did you end up coming to 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 find to to, to create accelerate and in that process right so i could take it back to starting my career in mid 2000s uh, at a large investment bank doing uh, m and a advisory and so you work on these M&A deals and they're trading in the market and you notice it the be like a risk arbitrage spread and so that kind of introduced me to the world of risk arbitrage from a practical standpoint, of course, to that point, I'd read about it in books, but had never really followed it uh, from an institutional perspective. And so did the investment banking analyst program and then always wanted to work at um, uh, on the hedge fund side, just because I always found myself more of a, a risk taker. And that was something that appealed to me. So after investment bank, I did join a hedge fund. And there we focused at the time was closed end fund arbitrage. And that was really a precursor to SPAC arbitrage. So if you go way back to then, um, kind of in the uh, around the great financial crisis and that time period, so this would have been the late 2000s, or call it 2005 to 2010. There was a gang of hedge funds doing uh, closed-end fund arbitrage. And if you look at those guys there, they moved to SPAC arbitrage because it was a very similar trade. But the closed-end funds, you could buy at a discount, short sell all the underlying holdings. And once per year, you had the option to redeem uh, where, where you would uh, just cover your short 
and close that discount, make that arbitrage profit such that we are able to be one of the few hedge funds that was actually positive in 2008 when everything else was down uh, pretty significantly. So it was a really rock solid uh, investment and then started incorporating uh, merger arbitrage. And so at that firm rank, uh, chief investment officer ran a number of alternative investment strategies, relative value arbitrage, uh, risk arbitrage, uh, convertible bond arbitrage, and then um, started the first cryptocurrency fund. Uh, this was in Canada uh, back uh, in early 2017. And then um, I noticed um, tremendous growth in the ETF market, tremendous growth in the alternatives market, but for some reason, no one had ever really combined them both. So I was always into alternative investment strategies. But uh, I thought it was a great idea to launch uh, alternative ETFs. And so there's a, a regulatory change that created liquid alternatives in Canada. And so I thought that would be a, a cool business opportunity. So, yeah, started Accelerate really with the mission of democratizing alternative investments. Going through 2008, when our hedge fund produced positive returns, I always thought that was unfair because there's the accruster rules and people would ask me what I used to do. And I'd say, well, I make rich people richer because fact of the matter is we're generating great returns, but our clients were already very wealthy. And those were probably the people that needed it the least. Like if you're worth $20 million and we made you high single digit return in 08, yeah, you're, you're happy about that. But it's like the middle class and the Poor people, uh, they had a real rough go of it through the global financial crisis. So it was always my goal to try to even the build because, you know, I didn't come from a, I didn't come from wealth. I just, you know, came from a solid middle class, I'd say. So it was really my goal to be able to offer those institutional caliber investment strategies that weren't just for the wealthy. If we could offer them to everyone, I think that would uh, be a great thing. And so that's why we decided to focus on alternative ETFs, take exactly what we're doing on the hedge fund side and put them in exchange listed products, basically providing that style asset allocation, those tools that the Yale Endowment would use, billion dollar pension funds, family offices. If you're if an investor with $100 to invest, they can now have that exact same portfolio just through alternative ETFs that are low cost, liquid, transparent, easy to use that trade on the stock exchange. So I, I'm pretty obsessed with innovation and doing something that is novel and kind of inventing new things. So that's why I uh, chose to start Accelerate just to offer those products that had never been offered before and, and make them accessible, easy to use. And um, yeah, just really democratize the space. And you are continuing to democratize the space with some new offerings, which we're going to get to, uh, or at least an update on some of them as we move forward. But I'm going to throw it back to Danny now uh, to take it over. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Julian, I thought that was a great answer. And, uh, you know, it's it's pretty inspirational that uh, you didn't necessarily come from, uh, you know, a background of finance and, and you were able to kind of teach yourself and not only that, be a very successful entrepreneur. Um, and uh, kind of speaking on those terms there um, of uh, maybe pivoting what you said there, Julian, Matthew, I wanted to toss it to you and ask you that um, Tuttle, Cap uh, Tuttle Capital focuses on ETFs with a strategy, what's known as informed agility. Can you explain that phrase and how it reflects your firm? Yeah. So, you know, there, there are two parts to it. The first part is about being informed. 
And what I see so often in the investment field is, you know, everyone gets kind of stuck in their own dogma. Like, you know, have, yeah, value investing is the best. No, it's growth investing. No, it's being technical. It's growth. You know, there's just so many different methodologies out there. And, you know, so many different people trying to tout, you know, my methodology is the best. And, you know, since, you know, I never grew up in any one methodology, I kind of look at it from the outside and I say, well, you know, wait a second, there really is no best methodology, but just about every methodology that's not stupid has something about it that's good or some time period where it's going to do well. So the part about being formed is, you know, instead of being stuck in one methodology, it's looking across multiple methodologies, trying to take what's best in those methodologies, and then constant and never-ending improvement. One of the other things that's always you know, fascinated is not the right word, but I can't think of something moment about the investment industry is it's the only industry where you can go in and say, you know, hey, I've been doing it this way since 1970 and I've never changed my approach and I never will. And that's like a good thing. I mean, you know, look at Apple. I mean, Apple just released the, the iPhone 13. You know, imagine Apple releases the iPhone one. They're like, all right, we're done. I mean, this is cool. We, we like it. We're not going to try to improve upon it. I mean, that'd be crazy. And same thing in the investment industry. Just because I got something that's working today doesn't mean it's going to work tomorrow. And it's just ridiculous to not kind of try to improve upon it, get better at what you do, learn new things, see new things, market dynamics change. You've got to have, you know, you, you've got to have your finger on the pulse of what's going on in the market. So that's the informed part. Then the part about being agile is, is being willing to move. You know, so many things in the investment space, you know, rebalance like yearly or semi-annually or quarterly. And, you know, for some strategies, maybe that's fine, but things happen so quickly that, you know, there's so many things where I look at it and like, man, I'd, I'd hate to be trapped in, in that if it's the wrong way for a quarter or six months or a year. And imagine going to an investor and saying, yeah, you know, I, I know we're positioned the wrong way, but we got to sit here for six months because that's when our index rebalances. So being agile is, is being willing and able to move. I mean, we've got one of our ETFs, FAT-T, our tail risk ETF. We've got some models that can move on a daily basis because, you know, we're buying volatility. I mean, what's going on in volatility is is changing, you know, very, very quickly. You know, I, I, I couldn't run that strategy, moving it on a monthly or a semi-annual. You know, other strategies we have that move weekly. So that that's what informed agility is all about. And on most of the products we launch that aren't like, really specific towards one outcome that goes into our thought process in designing the product. Well, uh, Matthew, I really like that. And um, because you're so agile in your, in your methodology at, at Tuttle, then 
uh, I wanted to ask you this. So when it comes to any investment, uh, if you see it turning against you, uh, what's what's the time frame? And do you have a specific strategy on uh, how much of a loss you're willing to take before um, you get rid of it or you double down? Or does it just constantly change depending on which investment it is? So, I mean, it's really constantly changing. You know, I, I know a lot of times people ask, well, you know, what about stop losses? And what, you know, our research has shown with stop losses is usually they end up stopping making you money. You know, you end up getting stopped out of something and then it ends up going right back up. We actually, we're big believers in, in counter trend methodologies and, and we blend that into what we do. In a counter trend methodology, what you're doing is you're buying what's been beaten up instead of buying what's been going up. So one of the things we like to look at is, all right, what, you know, what, what stock or what group of stocks or, you know, what sector has been doing well, you know, in the past, but has recently been butt kicked. And, you know, that would be a buy trigger for us. So, you know, I, I really would then have to say it just it really depends on on what you're looking at, because everything is different. The informed agility. Uh, I mean, some really good examples there about uh, the way Apple, if they had just released Apple one uh, iPhone and never changed. Uh, it's true. The, the ability to sort of evolve and iterate quickly, uh, I think, is definitely an advantage uh, and something that we're going to see consistently more of as technology plays such a crucial role, you know, as we move forward in in just life, but specifically markets. That's a really good segue to to Julian and and sort of, it's been a wild year, twelve months now. I mean, I think I spoke to you guys almost a year ago originally with Bill uh, on a, on a call, and you know, it's been a wild year for SPACs. Can we sort of looking at it today? Can we can we have a perspective from you on sort of the pros and cons of investing in a SPAC versus a traditional IPO after what we've seen over the last year? Have things changed or where do you stand on it today? Yeah, I can take that one. And so SPACs are an alternative asset class. And that's important to mention because they're not stocks, they're not bonds, but they're a, an asset class that really came to the forefront over the past, call it 15 months prior to that, they're really a backwater. So ultimately, what a SPAC represents is a treasury bill plus uh, an equity call option. And that's how it should be treated. And uh, when looking at these things, what matters is, you know, the value of that T-bill, i.e. The, the trust value, usually it's around $10 and will accrue interest over time. And then that equity call option value, which is ultimately related to the, the sponsor and how the SPAC is structured with respect to uh, warrants and rights and things of that nature. So it's really important to be cognizant of what a SPAC represents in terms of the asset class, the risk roar dynamic in that as long as you're buying at the right price, it represents a pretty phenomenal risk reward and the notion that, look, these aren't stocks. Historically, SPACs have had little or even slightly negative correlation to stocks. And so they really shouldn't be compared to the S&P 500. I mean, people have like this uh, kind of perverse 
uh, obsession with comparing everything to the S&P 500, but ultimately you just got to consider risk reward beta and things of that nature. So if you're buying a SPAC at 970 as a value is $10, then uh, in my opinion, that's a pretty phenomenal risk reward. And, you know, it's a yield generation mechanism. If you're buying T-bills at 97 cents on the dollar and plus have a, uh, equity call option. And the other thing to, to, to realize is that uh, it's a market that is highly cyclical and it moves in waves. Like we went on a, the biggest bull run in Q4 into Q1. It peaked Feb 19th and then went on to bottom kind of six weeks later. And we've just sort of meandered along the bottom for nearly six months here where there's just been this continued flood of supply. And the thing that people got to realize back in February when 100% of SPACs were at a premium to net asset value, many investors saw nothing wrong with paying a 50% premium, $15 for $10 of cash. So those equity call options were way, way in the money, which was surprising even for pre-deal SPACs. But now uh, things went from scorching hot to ice cold where investors are like, oh, SPACs are dead. I wouldn't even buy this with a risk-free return <laughs> because that's what you're basically getting if you're buying at 970 and can redeem at $10. And so sentiment is hugely important in the SPAC space. It does require expertise. It's not an asset class that you can go in uninformed. And I see a lot of individual investors that don't understand you know, how SPACs work, how to redeem them, uh, how the units work, how they split into common shares and warrants, uh, the danger behind <laughs> warrants. They forget that the warrants are highly levered equities. And, and if a SPAC doesn't find a deal, they go to zero. So there's a lot of nuances you pick up over time studying this asset class. And it's an asset class that really, if you're going to invest in it, it's a gig and you need a team behind you because there's just so much going on, nearly 600 SPACs out there. I just feel like you know, it's real tough for individual investors when they're going up against pros who have a significant analytical and data advantage. And it's a new asset class. And what I like about new asset classes, whether it's SPACs or cryptocurrencies and things of that nature, is there's a lot of inefficiencies and you can generate a significant amount of alpha when there are inefficiencies. It's tough to say that about uh, U.S. large cap growth equities. I mean, those things are pretty darn efficient and it's really difficult to beat that market. But in other less efficient markets, I always like to say you want to as, well, it's more of a Charlie Munger quote, but he says, you got to fish where the fish are, right? And the fish are in inefficient markets, not these, you know, people buying Amazon, uh, Apple, stuff like that. Um, you know, you're not going to outperform doing that. If you want to do that, just buy the S&P 500 and go to the beach. So it's so a lot of nuances in the SPAC market. And if you're going to pursue it as an investment strategy, yeah, make sure you spend uh, 80 hours a week on it because it's a lot going on and uh, a lot to follow. Isn't that the truth? And that's that's another chance for me to, to chime in here and just ask uh, the resident SPAC man himself, Bill, is there any specific SPACs you're watching currently? Uh, you know, I, I look at the Daily Dish and, and see your headlines on the SPAC market, uh, and that's the best way that I'm able to sort of keep up with it. But as Julian, you're saying, you know, you got to be dialed in, and there's so much supply and information right now that it can be challenging. So that's one of the great things I like about the uh, the Daily Dish from, from Bill uh, and, and on SPACs. So if you have something, Bill, and you want to chime in from the SPAC side that you're watching, let us know. Yeah, I appreciate the kind words, man. 
Yeah, I uh, actually am. Unlike Julian and Matt here, who apply like a cross-asset strategy with specs, like buying everything and uh, using it as this kind of like a T-bill fund, I just I trade the news. Um, very simple. I look to see what's going on in social sentiment, and I kind of just buy as it comes. Um, right now, a lot of SPAC investors are trying to go for the gamma squeezes on um, things that are on SPACs that are um, completing their mergers. Basically, what's happening right now is people are seeing that a lot of redemptions are happening, as in like investors are getting back their $10 from their SPAC at the end of the end of the vote. And then in some cases, about 90% of investors are getting their money back and the float is going to absolutely like nothing. Um, in some cases, there's been like 1 million, 2 million, 3 million shares left on the market. And what they're doing with those 3 million shares is they're just buying call options against it. Usually you can't even buy call options on a on any equity without there being 6 million shares um, in the market. But in this case, it's like a little hack and people are just whatever, whatever they're playing with GameStop back in January, February, this is the same exact strategy. And this is what I'm doing right now. And this is what a lot of people that I know are employing right now as well. And it's going to work for as long as it works. And then you're going to get burned on one play. That's what I'm betting. Well, uh, Bill, I, I think that's a great point you made there. And um, well, my personal strategy is read Reddit for two hours every morning, and then I have a dartboard. I just throw some darts. So I think <laughs> I think I'm uh, I think I'm doing just fine. <laughs> I'm only you down nine hundred percent. But <laughs> Reddit has some really stupid people. Reddit has the worst people of stock with, but they all. It, Reddit also has some of the smartest people on Twitter. So I, I really like it as a source. I have a I have a, a section in my newsletter that I dedicate just to Reddit and just breaking down what Reddit is saying every single morning just so I can employ the strategy. Oh, absolutely. I, I see I see Reddit. Uh, there's some incredibly valuable information from, from traders and investors with that are seasoned veterans. But then, you know, it's kind of like going to, to Ross or something looking for like a nice <laughs> pair of shoes. Um, anyway, so I digress on that. Uh, Matthew, I wanted to to toss it to you and um, continuing this back conversation. Uh, is there a company or companies you think are looking to go public via SPAC before the end of this year or possibly even first quarter of next year? Well, yeah, I, I mean, you know, yeah, the SPAC market is slowed down, but it's it far from dead and still going to see a whole bunch of SPAC mergers come out, you know, Yeatsman's you know, almost every day. And, you know, and, and I'd really say amen to what Julian was talking about. I mean, I think the worst thing that could have ever happened to the, and I'm talking about pre-merger SPACs now, the worst thing that could have happened to the pre-merger SPAC market was back in, in January and February when everything was trading for such a premium and people started to look at pre-merger SPACs which I would agree with Julian are really, you know, a bond with an option on top, but people are looking at them the same way they look at GameStop and AMC. So, you know, now everyone says, well, the SPAC market is dead. 
And I would argue it's it's actually it's it's now doing what it's supposed to do, and it's looking like it's supposed to look. I mean, you know, we run, you know, the largest SPAC ETF in the U.S., and I remember February 15th or so, we're up 24% for the year, and I'm looking at that, I'm like, holy crap, you know, I, I would have expected, you know, in a good year, we'd be up like 12% for the year, and here we are a month and a half in, we're up 24 I mean, this this is crazy. This is not what it's supposed to be. And, you know, and now things are, are going like they're supposed to go. I mean, Bill pointed out a, a real interesting anomaly that we've also been seeing in the DSPAC market, where, you know, a lot of these DSPACs are now becoming the next meme stocks. And, you know, and we're also involved there. We, we created the DSPAC index. We've got, you know, a long and a short ETF on that. You know, those are obviously an entirely different animal than a pre-merger SPACs, you know, a pre-merger SPAC. The D SPACs, yeah, they can be like meme stocks. But yeah, I mean, we we think the the SPAC market will continue. There will be SPAC mergers announced. Some of them will be good, some of them will suck. Uh, you do have too many SPACs chasing too few deals. Some people probably won't be able to get a deal done at all, uh, in which case, yeah, you probably don't want to own those warrants. Uh, some people get deals done that are just, you know, hey, we were forced into something and the deal will be bad. And then other people will, will pick out some of the, the new unicorns. So it'll be a nice mix. I got you, Matthew. That's a nice answer. Are there, are there any, is there one specific company? That's currently private. That you're that you're hoping becomes public, either traditional IPO or SPAC in the near next next six months, possibly. So there's nothing at the moment. There were certainly some. I mean, you know, Allbirds would have been nice. Um, there was that EV company that just announced an IPO whose name escapes me at the moment. That would have been nice. You know, it, it would be from a sentiment standpoint to just see one of these real unicorns say, hey, we're going the SPAC route versus some of the things you're seeing or companies are doing the opposite. You know, hey, we had a deal with the SPAC, but, you know, now we're a little bit squirrely about it. But there's nothing that comes to mind at the moment, a little bit bummed, you know, about the Allbirds thing, even though it, it may have, you know, probably was too big for a SPAC, but you never know. And you can always hope. Wow. Uh, Danny, putting um, putting you right on the spot there for it. But no, Allbirds, I know Allbirds are, uh, that would be an interesting one. I know a lot of people talking about Allbirds recently. And uh, yeah, I mean, guys I work with swear by them. I mean, I've got freakishly wide feet, so I, I can't wear them, but a couple guys I work with do and they love yeah, them. They definitely seem like they have that brand identity. There's been a lot of news. I've been up on, it's hard. I got to be honest. I, I, be, I talked about Bill's newsletter. I read that daily. I, I read the daily updates uh, from you and, and the Tuttle team at Tuttle Capital. And, and I mean, it's amazing. I mean, you get the daily updates. Sometimes there's the weekly stuff. And then I'm over here reading about what's going on with Julian. And uh, I'll tell you what, that's just the, the beginning of it. But recently I'm reading about what's going on with Accelerate and the carb, carbon negative uh, Bitcoin ETF. So Julian... Can you just give us an update where we are on the brand? 
And also, is this personally important to you with like the booming ESG movement of investing and specifically maybe talk about what I recently read about the, the planting of trees and stuff and how that's all connected? Yeah, it's a, it's a really fun and interesting concept. So I've been involved in Bitcoin for many, many years. I, I launched uh, the first uh, Bitcoin in Canada in early 17. I believe Bitcoin was around 2000 uh, at the time, and it was before there were any regulations. And this was a private fund that just held physical Bitcoin. And it's a, a, a certainly a very interesting experience because the regulators uh, turned out they weren't uh, too pleased about that. And then uh, Canadian banks aren't, they don't deal with cryptocurrency very well. And so that was a formative experience, but I've always liked the cryptocurrency space. Uh, there's a lot of scams, but a lot of good things. Specifically, Bitcoin is the best part about uh, the crypto asset space. But what has changed pretty dramatically, um, well, two things. Number one, the price of Bitcoin has gone up uh, north of 20x since then over the past, call it uh, four years and a bit. The other thing is blockchain difficulty has gone up dramatically. Block rewards have come down and the energy intensity of the blockchain has just expanded and, and multiplied and with that has become the um, carbon emissions and those have become problematic over the past couple of years just with respect to all the mining energy uh, and power that goes into powering the bitcoin blockchain so it's been something that's been on my radar for a couple of years and the other thing that was on my radar is esg and in investing and one thing that really chaps my ass is the notion of greenwashing. <laughs> and greenwashing is where you're going to make a buck by utilizing EST as a marketing tool. So I'm not names, but there are fund providers that'll just slap ESG on an S&P 500 tracker, charge 10 times the fees, and uh, just do it to make money and have no net tangible benefit on anything to do with the environment, social, or governance factors. And so I was very cognizant of the notion of greenwashing. Like there's many equity funds that invest on say uh, ESG ratings, which fact of the matter are probably the opposite of what you wanna do. If you wanna have positive benefit on ESG factors within equity investing, you likely wanna invest in the worst ranked stocks and then agitate or be an activist to improve their environmental, social, and governance credentials. Uh, a firm did that on ExxonMobil of all companies. And I thought that was a wonderful and you know, tangible way to improve a company's uh, ESG ratings. And it was, it was kind of true ESG, in my opinion, from an equity side. And then going a bit deeper into ESG, some firms now are buying up carbon credits and uh, I'm pretty bearish on carbon credits. To me, they're kind of, they seem like a scam. If you look into how they're created, say you have a, a forest, a patch of timberland, and you threaten to cut it down, they'll actually pay you and, and issue carbon credits not to chop down your trees, even if you're not planning on doing that. So, you know, carbon don't necessarily provide a net tangible, net, net tangible benefit. Now, ESG, as it pertains to Bitcoin, 
uh, a couple of things that I want to talk about. So from a governance perspective, I think Bitcoin ranks very highly due to its distributed nature. There isn't you know, one person or one set of people governing the Bitcoin blockchain. It's well distributed and that governance is pretty exceptional. So I think Bitcoin ranks pretty highly from a governance perspective. Then on the social scale, Bitcoin is perhaps one of the highest ranking assets uh, out of anything from a social perspective, because we're talking about true sovereign money that cannot be printed by government governments. It is controlled by mathematics that you can trust and offered to anyone globally who basically you just need a mobile phone. And so it's exceptional from a social perspective in terms of protecting your financial freedom from the scourge of inflation government confiscation, and basically providing one type of asset that the government can't really get involved in your business, which is pretty phenomenal to have, in my opinion. So top marks from a social perspective, but quite frankly, from an environmental perspective, Bitcoin ranks very poorly. And that's a fact that we need to do something about it. So with the launch of the Accelerate Carbon Negative Bitcoin ETF, uh, we wanted to take that tack. So number one, yeah, there's huge growth in ESG, but we wanted to do something that actually combated the problem, which are carbon emissions. And so we instituted a novel and pretty innovative idea um, that isn't investing based on ESG scores and not trading carbon credits. So we incorporate and funded by our management fee for the carbon negative Bitcoin ETF. So we take up to 10% of our management fee and put that towards our decarbonization initiative, which consists of a global tree planting platform because forests represent nature's carbon sink. They're aesthetically pleasing. They go through a process called photosynthesis where they actually suck up uh, carbon from the atmosphere. And so, um, you know, it's a great thing to be part of, the reforestation of the planet. So that consists for ABTC is that we will be planting or we are planting mangrove trees in Madagascar to start, which are cost effective. Mangrove trees do sequester two to four fold the amount of carbon from the atmosphere that the average tree does. So they're really effective. They're cost effective. We could get the most bang for our buck. And the way that the math works behind ABTC, some people are skeptical. And, you know, that's fair. If you hear carbon negative Bitcoin, people are like, you know, what the heck is this? So the way that it works is uh, we have 30 estimates from both sides of the coin. So from one side, there's the Bitcoin transactions with which produce uh, estimated carbon emissions into the atmosphere. Then on the decarbonization side of the strategy is for each $1,000 invested into ABTC, we will plant about three and a half trees. And those three and a half trees will net sequester one ton of carbon emissions per year, which represents over 60-fold, six-zero times the amount of emissions produced by the Bitcoin transaction. So it's not just negating the emissions caused by Bitcoin, but more than uh, offsetting them by over 60-fold. So I think it's just something uh, cool and positive to be a part of. We get to diversify portfolios. I'm a huge fan of Bitcoin because, I mean, it's been the top performing asset historically 
basically out of anything else on the planet. In addition, and this is really why I like it from a portfolio perspective, it's had the lowest correlation. And they say in investing, the only free lunch is diversification. And the definition of diversification is low correlation. And Bitcoin provides that. And so we can diversify client portfolios while doing something positive for the environment. So we like the story. I love the fact that you're doing something. I'm excited to see how the the, the trees and the planting in, in Madagascar and all of that works. Do you have a time frame when you think that, let's say, the first tree would be planted? I mean, what's your expectation or goal there? Yeah, so what we do, we launched the ABTC ETF, Trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange, launched that about two weeks ago. And so as we basically collect our management fee from that product, the nine basis points, we take uh, up to 10% of that, so 6.9 basis points. We work with our partner in terms of hiring folks to plant trees in Madagascar, and then we are expanding globally from there. So it's pretty exciting, and we'll have something tangible to show investors by next quarter. So we're pretty excited about it. Uh, Julian, that is very admirable because that is a huge issue uh, that's going on for us, but especially lately uh, that's... Um, you know, carbon emissions, just um, so many sources of that. Uh, but I wanted to stay on the crypto uh, topic and, and ask you, Matthew, um, what's your take on crypto? And would you ever consider um, possibly down the road a crypto ETF? Yeah, so you know, I'd echo a lot of what Julian said. You've got buy-in now from nations. You've got buy-in from, you know, some of the largest financial companies in the world. What really kind of pisses me off is that, you know, the U.S. is supposed to be the financial capital of the world, but in, in no offense to Julian, Canada shouldn't be in our ass in, when it comes to innovation. So I really do hope that we do get crypto ETFs here. That being said, we do plan on filing something um, hopefully next week or two, it's going to be entirely different. It's going to be something that, you know, assuming that the attorneys don't throw a monkey wrench in it, it's going to be something that nobody's ever done before. Um, normally, when we go to file something, I mean, we come up with an idea and within a week or two, it's filed. This is taking us longer because we got to get the attorneys to actually understand it. Uh, we have some partners in this. We get to get them to understand it. I think everybody's on the same page now. And the attorneys have told us the way we've structured it, we might actually be able to get it approved. So that that could be interesting. So, you know, yes, we do plan on participating and stay tuned. Oh, wow. I love it. Ladies and gentlemen, the, the pre-announcement to the announcement that will be announced soon. I love it. Um, uh, can you, uh, probably can't, and I assume uh, it's quite okay if you cannot, but um, can you expand on any tokens specifically that you're looking at? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, bit, you know, Bitcoin, you know, I don't know that the SEC is anywhere near getting, you know, anything else approved. I mean, I know a couple of guys tried to, you know, file for, for Ether ETFs and pulled the filing the same day, which probably means tap on the shoulder from the SEC saying, hey, don't even bother with this. So, you know, we're, we're not ready to go there. 
so right now it's, you know, the, the only path we see in the U.S. is Bitcoin. So, like, when do you see institutional funds, like, getting into, I'd say, more crypto as a whole instead of just Bitcoin? Obviously, we know Bitcoin is going to come in through institutions probably in the next year or so. But getting into some of the further coins, like like in Ethereum or Solana, like what's the timeline do you see on that? So, yeah, I think every institution is going to be different. You know, I think that the volatility is going to matter. I mean, you know, what happened with Bitcoin, what was it, yesterday or the day before where it had that massive jump and drop? I mean, you know, looking at something like that as an institution you know, doesn't give you a warm and fuzzy feeling. And I think, you know, it's also how easy are these things to access? You know, like for me, for example, you know, I don't own actual Bitcoin because I'm old. I mean, you know, the idea of opening up a Coinbase account to me and buying physical Bitcoin, I'm just, that's just strange to me. But if I had an ETF, so like, you know, for example, even though it is a wildly flawed product in my FOMO ETF, we own GBTC because at least, you know, for me, you know, being an old guy, I can wrap my head around that and I'm comfortable with that. And if I had a Bitcoin ETF, you know, yeah, I'd make that a part of my portfolio, but going out and buying physical Bitcoin, that's just too much of a leap for me. So, you know, I think the the access question also for institutions is going to be important. And, you know, the mechanism where, you know, they feel comfortable from a risk standpoint. But, you know, I, th- I, th- I think we're, we're slowly getting there. Nations, you know, adopting this stuff. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think we'll get there. I just don't know when. That was a good question there, Bill. Uh, and also kind of just wanted to touch on the point of the uh, the, the Ether uh, ETF, uh, whoever that they got. You said how the SEC probably gave them a, a little touch on the shoulder. I would say that's probably more than the base. Uh, so <laughs> it's it's a fascinating. Yeah, and, and, and that's ridiculous. I mean, you can I mean, we do we make a lot of money on securities lending. I don't see the difference between securities lending and bitcoin lending but you know what what, what the sec's got it in for crypto yeah it's an interesting moment right now for for sure i mean it's across the board we we talk about the bitcoin etf and and sort of canada's ability to innovate and and what are we doing here in the united states but uh, that you know there's i think 20 plus uh filings for uh for a bitcoin etf here in the states that are just uh on pause i guess for a while until uh, we can figure out what the deal is. So, but with that, and soon to be right. 21. Well, you know, I got to say for everyone listening, and we're about to ask you guys, if anybody wants to get a question and come up, we're going to invite you up in just a few minutes. We're wrapping up here. But, and I want to ask Julian something quickly, but before that, uh, one of the most amazing things I think about Tuttle Capital and when you run these different uh, ETFs and stuff is the names. I mean, the way that you name your funds uh, is its own, right? Uh, you know, there's been there's some news recently uh, from Ark's point point uh, perspective that uh, they are going to be able to have clearance to buy Canadian Bitcoin ETF. So I wonder if that means they're going to invest in Accelerate's uh, offering. Uh, similarly, though, I know 
I think they should. Yeah. <laughs> so Kathy, if you're listening, uh, holler at you. Well, I, I think so. But And then similarly, we have – I wanted to get an update from uh, you, Matthew, uh, in a minute about something that you filed to go short uh, arc in the SARC. So if you can just pause for me there, Matthew. I wanted to get Julian's thoughts on uh, – because he has – been so early in the ETF and the Bitcoin ETF. What's your thought, Julian, on on Bitcoin futures? And then similarly, do you think that Bitcoin futures would affect Bitcoin and crypto as a whole? Yeah, so great question. Um, so when uh, I launched the my first Bitcoin fund way back uh, four plus years ago, they weren't any derivatives at that point. So you had no choice but to do physical and the custodians back then were far more sketchy and it was just more difficult to do. But now there's a lot more tools, including CME Bitcoin features, which are highly liquid, uh, open interest over a billion dollars and just tremendous amount of volume in the front month. And so futures versus physical, it's an interesting debate because each one has positive and negative attributes. So from our perspective, like our ABTC ETF currently trades futures only. That may change in the future. Like ultimately, the vision is to to incorporate both because I I feel both have disadvantages. So number one, futures they're not trading on the blockchain. More energy efficient from the uh, environmental perspective. So uh, less carbon emissions and more environmentally friendly. And then futures as insured Bitcoin. That is, they cannot get lost, stolen, or hacked. And that's something that you always got to worry about, like obsess about holding physical Bitcoin. I've been hacked in the, in the uh, personally, where they um, did a SIM swap, ported my number, hacked my email, hacked into my, hacked into my Kraken, all my crypto accounts. Luckily, uh, I had previously <laughs> basically liquidated everything. So there's very little left for them to grab, but it was a pretty, uh, scary experience to get hacked like that. So when owning uh, physical versus features, the main advantage of features is that they're in, they represent insured Bitcoin. But that being said, there is that term structure of the futures curve that, um, you know, if there's either a positive yield role in backwardation or a negative role yield in contango. So contango uh, and more often than not, it has been in Contango. So in order to roll those features, it has cost you a bit of money, which in my opinion represents the insurance costs of insuring your Bitcoin. And so that is one aspect that some could view as more positive on the physical side is you're just tracking pure spot and you're not subject to the dynamics of the term structure of the futures curve. So yeah, each one kind of has positives and negatives. Uh, with respect to, especially in a daily liquidity vehicle, uh, futures, you, you get that liquidity because you don't need to deal with hot, cold wallets and and all the, the hacking risk. But on the physical side, you don't have to worry about the uh, contango and roll yield, things of that nature. Hacking is a serious concern. And anybody listening, the most important is security. We're in an early phase of a new technology and hacking and there's all sorts of sophisticated hacking going on so yeah it's a treacherous thing if you're involved in it and certainly the best thing you can do is try to prevent it the best you can so be aware anybody listening to try to to, you know focus on making sure that's a priority and not uh forgotten about or put secondarily i want to flip back to you matt i know i teased it earlier uh but you made news recently i'm creating a new short arc etf 
it was gonna gonna go by uh, the 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 ticker symbol Sark. Can you give us an update on where's that at? The thought process behind it, and how's the interest been? Yeah, so you know, it, it's it's obviously been filed. It's not effective, so there's only so much I can say about it. But our hope is is mid October for when it becomes effective. And we're going to try to do something fairly unique, which is the moment it becomes effective, we're going to try to launch it, where typically you wait a week. And I've never really understood why you wait a week. So we're like, oh, if you don't need to wait a week. Let's just launch it. So, you know, the goal is mid-October. Uh, really, it came about, you know, so we launched our first inverse ETF in May. Uh, which is SOGU, which is short the the DSPAC index. Um, you know, fairly good timing for that, obviously, is, is DSPACs have been getting their butt kicked. Um, but, you know, it's really, really, really hard to launch an inverse, you know, just from an operational standpoint, to launch an inverse ETF. And a lot harder to run it than it is to run a non-inverse ETF. And also kind of post-Archegos, it's really hard to get swap counterparties to deal with you. So we did all of it. We were running it. We knew how to do it. So it's kind of like, all right, you know what? What's next? Because one of the things we really you know, are passionate about is seeing kind of what investors want but doesn't really exist. And one of the things we're seeing is, and, and I've got great respect for ARC and Kathy Wood and what she's done. And, and she's really, you know, you know it, even just from the ETH business, making active ETFs a thing has really helped us and, you know, and helped a lot of people who, who run active ETFs because back in the day they were all indexes. But we saw that there was a large demand, which as we're kind of sorting through things was even larger than we thought for people to be able to, you know, go short what she was buying. Because what she's done is she's created an entirely new sector. I don't know what to call it. I mean, Jim Cramer, I know, calls it Woodstocks. Goldman Sachs calls it unprofitable technology. You know, someday someone will come up with something better. But until they do, we, we just refer to unprofitable tech. And so if you want to go long unprofitable tech, buy ARC. But if you want to go short unprofitable tech, you know, you got nothing. So, you know, that's why we did it, because we saw that, you know, there was such huge demand out there. And, yeah, and the response since the filing has been mostly positive. You know, you do have people saying, oh, you know, they're betting against Kathy Wood. No, I'm not betting against Kathy Wood. And, you know, and actually, you know, we're we're hoping that she, you know, turns her performance around because, I mean, I'm a contrarian. I wouldn't short ARC right now. I mean, she's down, what, six year to date. You know, the time to short ARC is when they're up 30 percent or something like that and figuring reversion to the mean. So, you know, it's got nothing to do with we're betting against it. It's just, hey, we see there's demand out there and able to think outside the box. We're able to move quickly. I mean, from the moment we came up with the idea, we had this thing filed two weeks later and it would have been a week 
except uh, there was some other attorneys we needed to talk through some things with uh, that you know delayed it an extra week. So that's the story behind that. When are we getting well, the inverse Kramer ETF? You know, if and I am open to ideas. There's a whole other suite of inverse ETFs we're planning on launching. I want to do an inverse Kramer ETF. I have not been able to wrap my head around what we would be shorting, where we would get that list, how often that list would be updating. So I am open to ideas. If anyone's idea on, you know, hey, here's a way to get a list of stocks and it's the stocks are not changing too often because, you know, we're getting inverse exposure through swaps. The swap counterparties want a little bit of certainty. So if I'm going to them every day and changing the basket, that's probably going to piss someone in compliance off a little bit. But I, I, I mean, I'll do it if I can figure out how to do it. If you want to pay me to watch Jim Cramer every day, I, I'll gladly watch him. <laughs> you know that? You're going to need a lot of money to watch Jim Cramer every day. <laughs> Bill, that's a, that's a great question. and a great, uh, But I, I did want to turn it to Julian and ask you about uh, the Fed's actions thus far and even moving forward. Oh, well, I mean, I could prognosticate on the macro front for as long as you'd like me to. So I don't want to engage in any Fed hating because I don't do that. I just try to tell it like I see it. And so from the Fed's perspective, I think there's a significant risk of them keeping the liquidity floodgates open. I mean, they are engaging in unprecedented easy monetary policies. The amount of stimulus when uh, bond yields are at their all-time lows and equity valuations, like U.S. equity valuations in terms of the S&P 500, is at its highest valuation in over 100 years of data. And if you look at uh, the market or, or even the real estate market, uh, median house prices up, I believe, 18% year over year. Um, whether uh, you're looking at the CAPE ratio in equities, market cap to D GDP, EV to forecast EBITDA, EV to forecast sales, Q ratio. I mean, how many valuation metrics do you got to look at to realize, wow, equities are at all-time high valuations? Meanwhile, the Fed is not only keeping interest rates at zero uh, as the market is at dangerously high levels, not just stocks, but real estate and other markets as well, but they're also affecting quantitative easing to the tune of $120 billion a month. And you look at those valuation measures and people say, hey, you know, interest rates are zero. Money has never been cheaper. You look at the earnings yield, which is basically call it 300 basis points on the 10-year and they say, okay, well, that gets you a S&P earnings yield of 4.3%. Therefore, we should be trading at 23 times earnings. So it's justified. Well, you know, the market just to be, just to be where it is, is reliant on the easiest Fed policy in history, right? And so my concerns is now that they're talking about tapering bond purchases, asset purchases, come November and December, and... Uh, raising, um, you know, the Fed funds rate next year, as early as next year, 
now to me, if I was like a beta bull and equity bull and like, you know, balls to the wall along equities, that would concern me. Because if you're relying, if you're relying 100% of your stock market thesis is Fed policy remaining and they're telling you that it isn't, I'd be concerned about that, which is why, like, I had never advocate for 0% allocation to US large cap equities. I mean, people love the S&P 500 and it's outperformed dramatically over the past decade. But you look at, say, an intelligent investor like the Yale, Yale Endowment, their allocation to domestic equities is at 2%, right? And you got to think why. Well, they're kind of seeing the same writing on the wall. And so I'm not saying it's zero or 100% U.S. equities, but I think that it makes sense to diversify here. You own U.S., you own emerging markets, you own international. I mean, look around the world globally. If you're investing in equities, own some fixed income. And, you know, I'm pounding the table on alternatives. That's where I specialize, whether it's SPACs, whether it's crypto, whether it's long, short equity, global macro. There's tons of alternative strategies, real estate, infrastructure, gold, et cetera, et cetera, that I think investors are massively underweight. So my thing is diversification, especially when I view so much danger in U.S. large cap growth equities, given the Fed action. So they certainly prime the pump to the absolute maximum in terms of record QE, record monetary stimulus, uh, and conditions have never been easier from a financial perspective. Valuations have never been higher. We're at levels last seen during the year 2000, the tech bubble, which at the time people who are actually investing back then say today is even crazier. And people talk smack about Alan Greenspan about keeping financial conditions too easy, spurring the tech bubble, spurring the housing bubble, which both resulted in disastrous recessions and just a ton of pain for uh, equity investors, real estate investors. And I see that whole thing playing out. I joke that each generation needs at least one tech bubble and each generation needs at least one real estate bubble. And it seems like we're getting them sort of like you know, in compressed time periods, tech bubble 20 years, real estate bubble 15 years, and it's 100% caused by the Fed. Now, I'm not blaming Jay Powell. Like, his job is to make people feel great. It feels awesome when you're getting wealthier, and he, he wants to be known as a, a great guy. But, you know, you look at um, some central bankers from the past, specifically Volcker, who everyone probably hated because he jacked up interest rates to uh, double-digit levels, uh, caused a recession, caused stocks to tank, caused bonds to tank. And you contrast that today when we're printing, you know, inflation at 15-year highs, 5 6%. No one seems to care about that. But uh, like I said, I just call it like it is. I'm not anti-Fed. I'm not pro-Fed. I just think, how can we deal with this record amount of stimulus? Maybe pare back on your U.S. equity exposure a bit may gain exposure to things that can protect you, store a value in an inflationary scenario, i.e. Bitcoin and gold. Notice I'm not one or the other. Sure, I own a lot more Bitcoin than gold, but I think they're both good diversifiers and own alternative asset classes that can perform well in an environment of rising interest rates where, quite frankly, I think equities would get smoked. But don't go to 0% equities because I think that's stupid as well. So... I'll close my macro prognostication at that hmm. with the key idea of just diversifying and being concerned about what's going on. 
Julian, I think you made a great point there. And um, Matthew, I wanted to uh, I wanted to ask you the same question. Uh, the Fed's action thus far and um, and moving forward. What's your take on that? Speaking of Jay Powell, we um, we reserve ticker symbols like people used to reserve URLs. So we actually own the ticker. Well, we don't own, but we have a reserve. The ticker symbol JPOW, JPOW. So one thing I'll just throw out there, I don't know what the heck to do with it. I'm open to ideas. Um, you know, as far as the Fed goes, though, you know, yeah, it does look like they're behind the curve. They've created a bubble. What I'm not sure about, you know, for years and years and years, you could always kind of bank on when people would say, hey, this time it's different, that it never was. You know, I was around in the tech bubble. I was obviously around the real estate bubble. And everyone was saying, hey, it's different. And it wasn't. And, you know, people are saying this time, hey, it's different. I'm not convinced that it, maybe it isn't different. I think that the massive move we've seen into indexing has fundamentally changed market dynamics. I think what's going on with the retail and the, you know, the, the Reddit, the Wall Streets, you know, the stuff that Bill is doing, I don't think is going away. And it's entirely different than what retail investors are doing in the tech bubble. And that has fundamentally changed markets. So, you know, is this time different? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I would echo what Julian says. You want to have a diversified portfolio. You know, I mean, we've got FOMO, which, you know, if the if we have a bull market, it's going to kick ass. But then we've got our tail risk fund, which is designed for a bear market. I mean, we're coming out with SARC, which is designed for a bear market. We've got SOGU designed for a bear market. But then DSPC, which is designed for a bull market. You know, we've got our SPAC fund. You know, I think that, you know, SPAC, pre-merger SPAC should be in everyone's portfolio because I think for the most part, that stuff's going to be immune to market declines. I mean, you know, you got a SPAC trading at 970 that you can get $10 for. How much further can something like that fall? So, you know, have a diversified portfolio. Don't pr try to predict where things are going to go. And, you know, so, yeah, I would just I would echo what Julian said on having a diversified portfolio. We'd like to thank Matthew Tuttle, Julian Klamachko, Bill Spackman and the community for a great conversation. To stay informed of upcoming conversations, subscribe to the Investorly newsletter at investorly.substack.com. Investorly. Invest early in yourself.